This is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you greetings and felicitations. In this podcast series, I'm going to be visiting with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, historians, and a wide variety of other people on topics that are outside the area of compliance, but are of great interest to myself and to listeners to the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I visit with Dan Levitt. Dan is a co-author of the book Intentional Balk about the fine line between cheating and innovation in baseball. As you might guess, given my love of baseball and my diehard Astros fanness, it was a topic near and dear to my heart. We take a look at uh, the history of cheating throughout baseball up until 2022. I know you'll enjoy this episode of Greetings and Felicitations. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to another episode of Greetings and Felicitations. I always say you're in for a treat. Guess what, Bat fans? You're in for a double treat today. We have Dan Levitt. Dan is an author and wrote one of the most fun book reads I have had in quite some time, a book called Intentional Balk. So, Dan, first of all, welcome. First of all, sorry for that long-winded introduction, but <laughs> thank, you, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. My pleasure. Great to be here. So your book is about kind of nefarious activities generally called cheating in baseball. But before we get to the book, you have a long back catalog and probably great love of baseball. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I've always loved baseball and I've always been interested in history. Why things turn out the way they do. Look into sort of causes behind things. As I started becoming an adult, I thought there would be a fun way to put the two together. And I started writing some baseball articles in the late 90s, which were published in one of the journals of the Society for American Baseball Research, which is a group I'm a member of. And from that, I just continued on exploring things that I found interesting in baseball and baseball history. And I've done five books. Three of them have been with co-author Mark Armour, who we do this one here together. It's just, I've always loved baseball. And this has been a really fun outlet to be able to explore that love. But Writing about baseball is not your day job. What is your day job? <laughs> no, unfortunately, it's pretty hard to make a living writing about baseball. I run the capital markets for a real estate firm based here in Minneapolis, but semi-national. It's Ryan Companies, and we're a developer and construction company doing pretty much all types of property development around the country. And it's fun. Mm -hmm. The beauty of real estate is that every deal is different. And it really keeps you excited. And we met through a mutual friend, John Petrovsky, who was in the commercial financing arm. His last job was with BMO, but I think you've known John for many years professionally. Yeah, I've probably known John since the early 90s when we well, he'd been in the business a couple of years and I was really just getting into it. And we became friends then and have just stayed in touch over the years as we've moved around to different places. Let's move to intentional Bach. What intrigued you about uh, cheating in baseball or what kind of piqued your interest to led to the research that led to this book? There's been a lot of conversations about cheating over the last 20 years, whether it's sign stealing or steroids or goop on the baseball. And each scandal, if you will, had its own narrative around it. And it, very much what's going on this particular issue. And Mark and I, as historians, were really interested in the context and the connections between all of this. Why is some cheating looked at differently than other cheating? Has there been changes in this over the years? 
what other types of cheating have been going on that maybe we didn't make a big deal out of, or maybe we did and we've just forgotten about it as a society. So that we were looking at it as historians, what are the connections, what are, what's the context? The other thing that I would just add is that Mark and I, the other two books we did have been on team building and how smart teams put themselves together to win and sort of history of front offices. In some ways, this is really an extension of that in the sense that teams that are trying to be good and win, sometimes they go over the line. And so in a, in a little bit, this is looking at those same kinds of teams, same kinds of players and wondering what happened when they went a little bit too far. That sounds a whole lot to me like organizational tone, organizational culture, tone at the top and the values throughout your organization. Probably the biggest thing that intrigued me about your book was, I'm also a history buff, so I will just say there's nothing new in history. And when it comes to cheating in baseball, it turns out there's really nothing new. Tech may change, certainly the players change, but you were able to identify cheating scandals into the starting in, I should say, the 19th century. Yeah, baseball first became a competitive game in the 1850s when you had these basically New York area clubs playing against each other. And as soon as these clubs started playing, it was still a gentleman's game. But when teams decided that they had to win, they would get jumpers or ringers from other teams, like players who were essentially on another club, that they would get them to play for their team. And at the time, there weren't really any rules against this. Rules were quickly placed against that, which didn't necessarily stop it. The other thing is that by, at the time, everybody was an amateur. That was, you had to be an amateur. That was part of the deal. But of course, it didn't take long for teams to realize that if they paid the best players, they could, under the table, they could get them on their team. And so literally within the first decade of baseball becoming competitive, you had teams doing pretty much illegal stuff to try and get the players onto their team and so they could be more competitive. One of the real turning points in attitude seemed to be when professional umpires came into the game. You mentioned early on, it was a gentleman's game. And in your book, you talked about the, that the players themselves would essentially umpire police themselves as we might in a pickup basketball game when we were in college. But when professional umpires came in to the scene and came into the game, the attitude of players seemed to shift that it's up to the umps to police the game, not us. And we'll do whatever we can up to the line or across it and makes the umps enforce it. It was, was that, did I get that part right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's a good point. And we talk about it, that, that at some, once the umpire was in the game before that, it was call your own and pick up basketball. But once the ump was there, player and fans, I think, and all of us really said, if you can get away with something on the field that the umpire doesn't catch, more power to you. Whether it's trapping a ball in the outfield and holding it up and waving it like you caught it, or the first baseman might pull his foot off the bag a split second early in order to get the call. These are things that players were coached to do. In the neighborhood play at second base, when a double play, you might just drag your foot. You might not touch the bag, but just go near it, and the umpire might call that play out. And I would just step back and say that's not limited to professional baseball at this point. I think as, as in Little League, I think people, some kids are coached up that way. And if you trap a ball in the outfield, you hold up your mitt as if you caught it. So I think there's this general philosophy that's permeated society that if, if that it's the umpire's job to catch you, and if they don't, you that's more power to you, and that's okay. And if you're a fan of that team, you're generally excited about that. And I think most players and fans look at it that way. And so I don't think that most people, it's cheating certainly at some level, but 
that's part of what we talk about the nuance of cheating is though I don't know that most people would really consider that wrong to say to hold up a ball you trapped and say you caught it. Right now we focused on now three groups. We talked about to the players and the umpires, but this was your book was much broader than just those two categories. You talked about the front office, you talked about ownership, you talked about groundskeepers. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the ubiquitousness of this with all of those groups. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is that just if you look at groundskeepers, just as an example, it's interesting how they felt so much that they were part of the team. If you follow it, they very much viewed helping the team win as something that they could do that was a positive. And you look back at some of this, it had to do with if you had a team that had a lot of bunters, when people, when players were trying to bunt for base hits in the 50s or 60s, maybe a team like the White Sox, they would they would tailor the foul line so that they would bend up a little bit. There'd be a little depression before the foul line so that the ball might not go foul. If you had a team that had like good hand fielders, but not real fast, maybe let the grass grow extra high in certain spots. The pitching mound, that was another thing that if you had a pitcher who maybe you had a pitcher who liked the high, you would make that, that, that mound higher than regulation. And if you had a pitcher that day who liked the low mound, you would like have that pitcher be, mound be a little bit lower than regulation for your pitcher and the other, the opposing team's pitcher, the visitor's pitcher, they would be stuck using a, maybe a non-regulation mound. And again, this was just something that, that groundskeepers believed was, this wasn't necessarily a regular occurrence, but if they thought they could get away with it, a lot of groundskeepers looked at that as sort of part of just being the part of the home field advantage. You also talked about how the front office, general managers, and others would manipulate player salaries, signing bonuses, when they were brought up, how they were hidden so that they wouldn't be taken away in Rule 5 drafts or other interleague exchanges of players. What were some of the things you saw in the front office that really stepped over the line or at least went up to it? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. So we, just as, as an aside, we define cheating for this book as things that teams are, good, are doing that can help them win. So when a general manager does something duplicitous to keep down a player's salary, Certainly that is an unfair practice, but not, we don't necessarily, we're not addressing that in this book. So we're looking at the stuff that the GMs are doing that's unfair to try and help them win. And so one example would be Branch Rickey, who's renowned for lots of really good stuff. One of the things he did was invent the farm system. And as an innovative, Rickey was as innovative as anybody in the history of baseball. But you look at by the late 1930s, he was illegally, quote, covering players up, meaning that he had players in, in his minor league system that were there longer than they should be. Because after a certain point, you should be able to be drafted and go to other teams, both for competitive nature and for the advancement of the player. And Commissioner Landis released 74 players from his system, just made them free agents because he was illegally covering players up, holding them too long. And I think that's this an example of what front offices do. And it's also an example of that the most innovative are often who, who come up with these ideas are often the ones that who then try and take it the next step. Just another example, more recently, just within the last five to six years, Braves GM, John Capolella was put on the permanent ineligible list. Essentially, that means banned for, for his infractions in signing illegally, siphoning too much money to certain Latin American and foreign players, that there's very strict rules on how much money you can spend on, on, on foreign players. And he was 
doing some manipulations to get around that in terms of how he was distributing money. So it, it's not just back from the 1930s. It was it's still been going on fairly recently. We've talked a little bit about the umpires. I'd allow now to move to the commissioner because you mentioned Commissioner Landis and the rules he had. I come from a heavily regulated world in, in many instances, as you do in your professional life. Mine is anti-corruption compliance. Yours, what would be other forms of compliance. But we have a set of regulators who give us regulations. Sometimes it's in the form of the FDIC, the Securities Exchange Commission. It could be the Department of Justice who create rules and regulations. But they set the framework for the regular, they set the regulatory framework. And if there's a violation, and they're aware of that violation, they may exercise punishment. In the baseball world, that could be a fine. It could be a suspension. You mentioned the former Braves GM banned for life. But one of the things that struck me was the lack of consistent enforcement at the very top levels of baseball, particularly in the commissioner's office. You gave some examples of the Billy Martin pine tar incident is probably one of the most famous with George Brett, where the umpires enforced the rule on the spot and that enforcement was overturned later. Then the rule was changed. We've had other instances where umpires didn't enforce rules. But in the Astros sign-stealing scandal, one of the things that struck me was the, com- the role of the commissioner. He felt like he had to create a rule around this, which he did in September of 2017 after the Red Sox were caught doing something. But now there was a rule in place, and that's what he was able to hang a hook on the Astros when they were One of the things that we found, and I'm sure you've seen it as you've looked at this, is the times that things get sort of chaos or controversy is when there's a big, there's a benefit to doing the infraction and the penalty doesn't match the benefit of that infraction. And there's a lot of ways that that happens. Some ways there's just no rule and it's just basically there's this consensual ethic, like an unwritten rule, but I just, we don't like that term because of some of it. It's got its own connotations. For example, sign stealing during the 20th century using binoculars was not technically illegal. There was no rule against it. And yet, Every time it happened, people complained about it. People who did it were hiding it. They weren't admitting it. So clearly they knew there was something wrong about it. And baseball did nothing until Rob Manfred really sort of decided to, there there was a rule put in around 2000, basically saying you couldn't use electronics means to transmit stuff into the dugout, which really was the impetus for the rule against the electronic sign stealing. It's other ways, right? The goop on the baseball. No player was suspended between Nelson Potter in 1944 and Gaylord Perry in 1982, and yet everybody complained about it. And I think to some degree, the goop on the ball is a good example of another sort of inst- or theory or idea is that if the speed limit's 60 and people are going 65, we just kind of let it go and the traffic works. If you're going 85, then all of a sudden it doesn't work and you have to crack down. And to some degree, I think that's what happened with the spider tack on the baseball, another innovation, another sport, world's strongest man competitions. They went over to baseball. And in 2021, baseball said, you know what? It's now gotten too good. It's not just somebody putting a little Vaseline on the ball and we're having these little conversations. We've actually changed the nature of the game and we have to go do something about this. And the complaints are too strong. So, I mean, to a certain degree, you because enforcement is hard and it's expensive and it detracts from the game, you don't want to overdo enforcement until it gets to a point where you have a real problem. And baseball seems to have gotten itself in some of those more than most and fairly recently. 
How can we determine if something that's truly innovative, and you mentioned the spider tech, is acceptable or is cheating? So let's go back to the Astros because they had a very dynamic analytics department and they were breaking down spin rates. They were breaking down angles, bat swing angles. They were doing things that, that really weren't being done, at least on a routine basis, in the first part of the last decade. Is that what led to their increase in batting average? Or was it cheating? Was it some combination? How can we begin to think through it? And I'll even throw in my favorite example from another sport, golf. When I played golf in the 60s and 70s, we had something called woods. And it really was a club with a woodhead. And if you could drive 200 yards, you were thought to be pretty darn good. If you drove 300, you were a monster. We've got guys hitting with wood, we still call them woods, at 400 yards. And that is not because they bulked up, even bulked up on steroids. It's because of change in the tech in the golf club. How do we, how can we think through is innovation to be embraced and used or is innovation cheating with the spider tech? The spider tech is an example because it was something that moved beyond what was allowed as cheating, right? I took, in my way of thinking, the spitball, the Vaseline on the ball, whatever sort of little stuff people are putting on the balls, it was up to the umpire to catch you. And if the umpire didn't, you got away with it. It was viewed as funny. We all seen the video of Joe Necro at the mound pulling the pulling the nail file out of his pocket and throwing it. If you haven't seen it, it's pretty funny. It's 1980, from 1987. It's on YouTube. And basically we laugh at that. I, and he went on Joe Negro went on to David Letterman later. He had it wearing a tool belt. There was this whole sort of gag around it. And somehow the spider tech, I think, is different because it took it to another level. And I don't know. It's hard to draw that line. And that's part of where any group that, that has these rules has to figure out when you have to crack down on enforcement, when you can't just let the status will be. So I, that, it's, it's a hard question, but clearly spider tech sort of changed. It allowed people to, to craft these designer pitches, if you will. And the other thing that goes with that was the fact that now with this high-speed video, you could actually have these very, you'd have these studios with cameras and you'd, pitchers would spend time in there designing these very powerful pitches where that's, that's spun more. They, they could look at exactly how they held the ball and how they twisted their wrist. And so you went to this new level of it and you really had to either crack down or just have a different nature of the game. And just one other quick comment, because I think it's interesting too, regarding the sign stealing, Max Scherzer came out about six weeks ago, the great pitcher for the Mets. And I don't like PitchCom, which is this new electronic device that the catcher and the pitcher communicate with on the signals. And he basically said, I don't like this. We, if I can figure out a way to do better signs than other people, that should be an advantage for me. Now that I can't think, I'll think my opponent with signs, it's no longer an advantage. And so the other advantage thing is not just make your other option, of course, either you make a rule and enforce it or let it be. And you assume that you make it legal effectively, right? Scherzer's basically saying, let's make sign stealing, not specifically, but in practice, he's saying, let's make it legal so that if I can think of better signs, that's my advantage. One of the things that have intrigued me, and I think everyone listening to this podcast knows I'm a diehard Astros fan, color your thoughts of my remarks with that knowledge. In this Astros sign-stealing scandal was in the World Series with the Dodgers. And the Astros, in two games, lit up Clayton Kershaw. They absolutely annihilated Hugh Dervish. And Dervish uh, said that they were illegally stealing 
signs to hitting his pitches. The Houston pitcher, Justin Verlander, was very vocal that the MLB had changed the baseballs. They had some somehow done something different and they felt different. And Verlander said, this is what I do for a living. I can tell you they're different. I can't tell you how or why they're just different. It all coalesced for me is significant or how big a factor of having people think you're stealing signs and getting in someone's heads play. And that's the true for all of these in spitballs and goop. In sign stealing, in any of those, it was clear to me the Astros were inside Dervis's head and that he felt like he couldn't throw his signature pitch as effectively for whatever reason. And I think they let him believe that. How much does people think you're cheating an advantage? I think it's really big. I read Gaylord Perry, who's probably the best known spitball artist, came out with a book while he was still playing that said, I throw the spitball and then... He came out later and said, no, I don't. I just say I do because I want to get inside people's head. So I think it's huge. People have done studies on how much the sign stealing really helped. And they're ambiguous. It's not as definitive as one might think. I think partially we just, it's hard to do a study because there's no way of really knowing which pitches were tipped and which ones weren't. And clearly the Astros did have an extraordinary strikeout to walk kind of percentage when they were theoretically getting these pitches, getting the pitches tipped to them. So I think there's something there. But again, the people who've looked at this in studies, it's not as clear cut as I think we'd like it to be, although there there is some strong evidence. So again, I do think that the psychological part of that is is real. And I think we both played intramural sports in college. I played sports junior high and high school competitively, played basketball till my knees gave out. So we've all played sports. We've all played them competitively, admittedly at an amateur level. What changes at the professional level that really will drive people to seek a an advantage wherein, and you use the example of uh, intramural basketball, we called our own fouls. We may not like all the calls, but we were self-policed ourselves. What's different about baseball or maybe even professional sports? Well, George Bamberger, who was a manager of the Brewers and Mets for a long time, had a great quote that unfortunately we found after the book came out, but I'll give you part of it. He basically said, we do not play baseball. We play professional baseball. Amateur plays games. We are paid to win games. There are rules and there are consequences if you break them. If you are a pro, you often don't decide whether to cheat based on if it's right or wrong. You base it on whether or not you can get away with it and what the penalty might be. A guy who cheats in a friendly game of cards is a cheater. A pro who throws a spitball to support his family is a competitor. So I think very much when you get to this level, whether it's big time college athletics and scandals bringing in players, it's there's a it's it's this cost bet. It, it's it, be, it no longer becomes a moral issue it becomes a cost benefit issue of what's the benefit and what can I get away with? And I really think that not to everybody and maybe not even to a majority, but I clearly. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of greetings and felicitations. I've linked to Dan's book, intentional Bach, in the show notes. It's a fun read. It's a quick read. If you love baseball, if you love ethics, if you love any of that, it'll be a great, great insight for you and a lot of fun. So I hope you will uh, check it out. This podcast, Greetings and Felicitations, is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We look forward to visiting with you again.